The Sour Hour is meant for the serious brewer. The Sour Hour may contain some seriously funkified content. The Sour Hour is not for the faint of heart. So exercise some damn discretion, would you please? Sheesh. And now, here's the Sour Hour with Jay Goodwin. Alright, it's that time again. Back on the Sour Hour. Your host, Jay. Here with Scott Hiscott. Hello. Here with Bevo. Hey, Bevo. Hey, Bev. Still back there? She raised her hand. Who's here? I'm here. Hi. It's an audio <laughs> podcast, actually. So, oh. You know. her hand, oh her I'm hand, on video. Her hand flew up. I'm here. Bevo, present. Present. <laughs> and we're here more, with uh, Fowler. Bueller. More. From Anderson Valley. Hi, also Fowl. How y'all doing? Noted author. I, wow. I, I note that you're an author, so that <laughs> Alrighty, proves my point right there. Barley wine goes uh and now open in front of us. Uh, what kind of sounded like maybe a? Uh, I don't know if you would describe it as like a barrel aged barley wine, but sour kind of thing here in front of us. Yeah, you know, Is that fair? this beer came about. We started a barrel program back in two thousand and one, and a lot of people had you know they were like, "What are you doing?" and <laughs> Uh, You're like, shut up. I was like, ask Tommy what we're doing. He'll tell you. It actually, a lot of us back in the early 2000s had no idea what we were doing. And Tommy and Vinny had a pretty good idea what they were doing, sort of. Uh, but we all got together at the Tornado and organized a conference where we brought in uh, some wood experts, barrel experts, and uh, different people to talk about these things because we all didn't know as much as we would like to. That was pretty interesting. And out of that, uh, we went back and bumped up our barrel program from one to ten barrels and <laughs> so we had ten barrels you know sitting around doing stuff and i left anderson valley in 2005 and went to work in asia for five years and i came back in 2010 and during that time our production manager dave gallon decided that we should sour a barley wine <laughs> and they made a barley wine and ran it into a barrel a bourbon barrel and soured it and they called the beer gatlin damnosis and it's his favorite beer and he's a uh, very tall, so there's a lot of body mass. He can put away a few of these, uh, <laughs> unlike a normal human. And uh, this is Dave's favorite beer, so we continue to make it because Dave wants us to, and we don't want Dave to quit because he's awesome. Also, but, sounds like you don't want to mess with him either. No, yeah. no, I, he's got reach on me certainly, and you know, he's probably much tougher than I am. Uh, he certainly is much tougher than I am because his the job is much tougher than mine. Uh, production manager is never easy uh, but we make this beer and it's a we, we made a barley wine and we run it into a fresh bourbon barrel and then sour it which of course is really a stupid idea you're making this gigantic beer and then you're putting it into a fresh bourbon barrel with more alcohol and then you're you know hoping that it'll sour mm -hmm. and we do it all with uh, pediococcus damnosis uh, hence the name gatlin damnosis and they, that bacteria doesn't like alcohol that much. And it certainly doesn't like hops, which we found out accidentally one year when we, you know, the the brewer forgot to, that we were going to barrel it all and made a normal barley wine with hops, oh. which took, it's that beer is still trying to sour. <laughs> but this beer takes two to four years to make for it to, wow. to get to its, its right spot. And when it's spot on, it is really quite an interesting beer. I think we're probably 
one of the few breweries stupid enough to make a sour barrel-aged barley wine. But there it is. This is a fascinating palate experience. You tell me if you have the same experience, Jay, where you write it first, maybe on the aroma, and then when it initially hits your palate, you're like, oh, barley wine. You know, it's vanilla-y and bourbon-y. Yeah. And then the acidity hits you after you've swallowed it. Mm-hmm. Is that purposeful? Purposeful? <laughs> you mean like we had a plan? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's one of the things that Dave likes about this beer is that it has the, the bourbon barrel-aged uh, flavor up front, the aroma up front, and then when you, like you said, when you taste it, it is it's barley wine, but he likes sour beer as well, and so he really en- enjoys that and purposeful. Uh, you know, our barrel program very little is purposeful. We don't we don't design the beers; the beers design themselves. We kind That's of fair. you know we're like a shepherd herding his sheep across the field, and most of them go one way when we want them to go another. Um, but eventually, they all get to the right place. It's got a mind of its own. Yeah. Eventually, they're all a coat. Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, and it's it's funny because it said, the, from reading from the side of the label here, in 2007, they said it couldn't be done. We set out to prove them wrong. And it meaning sour barley wine? Yeah. The the conventional wisdom, which is wisdom, is that you can't, you can't sour a, you know, eight and a half percent beer. Particularly when you put it in a fresh bourbon barrel. Well, and I mean, not only the the nuts and bolts problems of having it sour the way you want it mm-hmm. to, but also making those flavor components meld together seamlessly. Acid and big malt. In other words, it's a lot easier to start with like a golden base, yeah. you know, and then add some freaking fruit or something. Is but, that a shot at me? Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, you're those the, that dark sour golden, base golden recipe. Golden base and add fruit. That's you know, like, there that's you go. Our, that's our thing. Boom. <laughs> but that's a thing that works. And most of the time, this doesn't work. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, going into it, I would be worried about a few things, I guess. And this beer is awesome. Fantastic. By the way. Dave thinks so. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I'd be worried, okay, we start, yes, with the, the higher alcohol. That's one thing to overcome to produce the acidity. But then you're also probably starting with um, quite a bit of sugar left yeah. in the beer, which you know goes the opposite way. Okay, what if the PD caucus is going to thrive in this environment? And there's a lot of, you know, for, for it, fermentable sugar to chew on and produce maybe too much acid. I think that's kind of where you get into you know what's the plan versus what do the barrels tell us that they're doing you know it's it's a there's a wide range of outcomes when it comes to this beer and then maybe actually just add one more thing on there is the bourbon barrel as a, a long-term storage vessel for sour beer especially a lot more oxygen ingress than at least compared to a wine barrel yeah jay hates bourbon barrels yeah i do yes i don't know if i'd go all the way to hate but yeah they're not my favorite there, yeah. Well, just just in the context of like versus wine barrels, right? I mean, they're dirty, they leak, they're ugly, they're ugly. They get lit on fire, right. yeah. yeah, from the inside. Yeah, of, like, the charring on the inside is yeah. out of control. Yeah. There's no way to clean them once you yeah. once they're sour. That's it. If you can somehow execute, you know, you end up with this just wonderful like vanilla and oh, I, like, I love the tobacco. Beers. It's kind of the thing oh, where I can appreciate them more because mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I'm glad you did this because. <laughs> I'm yeah, good. I'm good. Totally. <laughs> but yeah, this this beer. Well, let me. I I don't want to ask too many questions at once. So no, what no. what did you what do you guys? How do you guys troubleshoot some of those uh, maybe potential issues when setting this out? Well, you know we we did have a, a little bit of a plan. Huh? We thought, as you said, you know there were there going to be leftover sugars for the PDO to work on, and we figured that the PDO would top out somewhere. The alcohol would, you know. 
overcome it at some point. And that seems to be the case because there is some residual sugar still floating around in there. This is not bone dry by any means. I don't know if we mentioned it's 11 and a half percent. Yeah, Gold. it's a big beer. Yeah. And that, you know, although Dave Gatlin can have two pints or six pints of it. <laughs> I'm, I'm Dave's a, one, a tough guy. I'm a one pint kind of guy on this beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to drive home someday. They, they really frown on me sleeping in the office every night. <laughs> Should have stuck with pills. Where's that Kolsch? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we, we, that, was part, that was part of why we used PDO um, as opposed to, you know, lacto wasn't going to make it. And one of our challenges with this beer is that PDO will often, you know, throw some diacetyl out there and different strains will throw even more. Now, if you've got Brett going on with that, that'll, the Brett will consume that, that diacetyl and, you know, reduce it down. Or if you've got a good yeast going on there, you, you might get lucky and have it reduce some. But quite often, PDO will throw a lot of uh, diacetyl out there and that, that gets to be an issue with this beer. You know, in the first year, it's, it's way diacetyl. It's, you know, it's not really drinkable. So, it's one of the things that takes a long time with this beer. That diacetyl has to work itself out. Can I ask how, how often you're sampling it? This beer, probably one or two times a year. Just because um, you know it's just going to take a while. Yeah. Uh, most of our barrel beer is three or four times a year, uh, depending on where they're going and you know what we think is going on. Uh, obviously, anything that gets fruit, we don't bother tasting it for three to six months. I mean, it's still working. Um, there's no point in tasting it. We do once in a while, but there's no point. Jay, do you think there's a point? Mm, it depends. I mean, all, not to get too off topic, but our whole production is wrapped up around sour beer. So planning out packaging schedules for us, it's all it's all dependent on the sour beer. So if after a month a fruit project has sulfur, we know it's going to take on maybe on the six-month side of things rather than the three-month side of things. That can help us with planning, so... But that's about it. Yeah, there's no real need to do it too often. Yeah, we don't we don't have those constraints. These beers, by and large, can sit as long as they need to, and mm-hmm. that's what ends up happening. You know, we taste them occasionally. You know, the the, the two big lessons, and, and thank you, Vinny, uh, Russian River Vinny, for these, Tommy, too, is the two things that we've learned that we really have to do is top the barrels, you can't let oxygen get in there. You've got to keep those barrels full. So you have to sacrifice you know, some of the barrels as, as topping barrels. Mm-hmm. And we do that a lot, pretty aggressive about topping. And we try to do it as gently as possible. Uh, the stainless steel nail you know, for tasting is, is huge rather than sticking a, a wine thief in there and breaking the pellicle and messing all that up. So those are two really good things. And then a temperature control, which at first we didn't really kind of grasp how dramatic that would be. But in our area, you know, we can have a 50-degree swing in temperature on, you know, some days. And quite often a 50-degree, you know, average temperature from winter to summer. So we get a huge coastal influence every evening. So we can we can hit 105 uh, during the summer days, and then it can drop down to 55 at night. On that same day, yeah, yeah. crazy. And so we, we have put in a system. We have a separate barn for all the sour beers. It's done in a, you know several hundred yards from our, our main brewery. I wish it was further away. Shit scares me to death. Uh, we put in a system that, you know, the fans will go on. We, you know, we have a winter setting and a summer setting. So in, in the summer, the fans go on at night and run all night until they, the outside temperature gets to a certain point. So we keep the beer cool that way, which is as important as keeping it warm in the winter. So when we fill barrels to sour in 
October or November, which we try not to because it, it's kind of pointless. They just sit for three or four months and don't do anything. They're just getting extra wood time, which for us isn't isn't something we want. Uh, so we try and fill them in the spring so they can get warm and do their action over the summer. And, you know, then hopefully when a year rolls around, they're ready to, ready to package. Uh, filling them in the fall just means they sit longer. So we try and keep it warm in the in the winter and cool in the summer. And temperature control has, be, has really made a difference in uh, the number of barrels that go bad and the uh, speed at which we're able to sour uh, some of the beers definitely i think that's a, a key for all all the beers but also an excellent explanation on how to execute such a difficult beer like this one thing i really love about just kind of get into the flavor of this beer a little bit more you know we we're talking off air during the break about how the rare barrel's doing some tart hazy ipa kind of things in cans in cans that's nice. right cans that's right cans coming after you 21 in. <laughs> um isn't it crazy how that was like a, a big thing hey craft beer in cans and people were like huh that was no. 10 years ago yeah now it's ubiquitous mm-hmm. yeah and people are particularly californians are like no yeah. no cans no cans yeah. cans now, cans in fact Vin, we we're hanging out with Vinny just a couple nights ago as we were saying at the top of the last show and mm-hmm. he was saying that now his bottles pop because they're on a, a shelf full of cans. <laughs> right, yeah. We don't, we don't have that problem. Our bottle's not popping in a shelf full of cans. Uh, we don't even hardly use the bottle machine anymore. Wow. I mean, it used to be 60% of our sales. Isn't that crazy? Down to like 25 or something. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Anyway, go on. So, you know, that the hazy IPA is a lot of big flavors, and we, we often do the base IPA, uh, and we'll serve that in our tasting room, and then we'll blend in some barrel-aged sour beer to make the beer. And... They're quite different. The, the tart IPA is it's not very sour at all, but just kind of takes the edge off and makes the whole big flavor a little more drinkable, in my opinion. And that's what that's where I'm drawing the connection with this beer is that bourbon barrel aged barley wine that's you know eleven and a half percent. You know, maybe that's a little tougher pint to take down. This is probably a tough pint anyway, but I could drink more of this beer than probably the base barley wine because oh, yeah. of just that little yeah acid that is so true more even more than like a sour beer i think of it as like a way to make a more drinkable version of some of these really big beers that are out there yeah like kind of it kind of like uh cleanses your palate after lack of a better you know you swallow it and you're, you're ready for the next sip and barley wines can be a little cloying yeah when i started uh, to get into cooking a little bit more i noticed that one of my big issues was making things like just too savory overall then I, you know, I realized, oh, this is why people have lemon juice and use vinegar yeah, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Even though I didn't didn't sound that good to me, you put a little bit of that in there. It's like, oh, this is balance. A beer that's like this is Gale's Old Ale, you know, which is big, dark, and a little sour. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's one of my perennial favorites when I see it. Absolutely, I grab one. Yeah, this is really hitting the spot. But another dangerous one. Yeah, 11 yeah. and a half. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, should we take a break? Scott? Let's do it, yes. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with Val on the Sour Hour. Back on the 
Last Hour Hour, here with Val Allen from Anderson Valley Brewing Company. Honestly, we're switching it up a little bit with the beers, you know. Gotta gotta break it up sometimes. This beer is distinctly lacking in acidity. <laughs> <laughs> Not sour. One star. One star. <laughs> we have the uh, Extra Dry Brute IPA from Anderson Valley. We were kind of discussing the style a little bit off air. Yeah. Um, relatively new. You know, just another example of Northern California innovation in craft beer. Not a big deal. We also have, uh, I'm going to say, 15 years ago, maybe, your uh, Russell Share uh, Award for Innovation. Is that, oh, am yeah. I getting that right? Yeah, it may have been more than 15 years ago. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> He's not old. He's old school. Yeah, old yeah. school. I think I think I got that back in '99. So that's what is that? That's 20 years, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Let's see, I was a sophomore in high school, and Jay was in eighth grade. <laughs> Shockingly, I was a sophomore in high school. Then. <laughs> yeah. Oh wait, no. Really killing it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, what's what's your interpretation of the style? Our interpretation uh, it should be Kim's interpretation. Mm-hmm. Kim at Social Kitchen kind of really uh, invented uh, this style, and I should say a free agent. Yeah. As of a little while ago. Oh, is that right? Well, a free agent. Mm-hmm. But I went, you know, I grew up in Hilo, Hawaii, and uh, a friend of mine, Bob, puts on the Hilo uh, Beer Fest, and I've been threatened to come out to it for a while. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to be there. Get ready. I'll come, really. And last year, I decided that, you know, I had been dinking around enough. So I went out to the Kona Beer Fest, and then went, flew back and went to the Hilo Beer Fest. And I was at the Hilo Beer Fest, and... Uh, there's a new brewery out of uh, Oahu, which is you know the island that Honolulu is on, a brewery called Lanikai Brewing, and a guy named Steve is the, the brewer owner there. Uh, and I tasted a Brute IPA that he'd had, and I'd heard of this. I, I'd had Dick Cantwell's, and I was intrigued by the the idea of this beer. And when I tried the Lanikai one, I was completely blown away. I kept going back to his booth and saying, "I need another one." <laughs> and I, I, you know, I had a bunch, and then at the end of the festival. Um, my friend Bob, who puts it on, has this beautiful home overlooking uh, the Hilo Bay. And he gets all the brewers together that want to come over to his house. And they come over and uh, drink the leftovers. And oh, That sounds awful. It's horrible. <laughs> Volcano is erupting, so you could see this glow, red glow in the sky across oh. the bay. And uh, we're sitting at Bob's house. And uh, the keg of the Lanikai Brute shows up. And there's not much left, but there's a little bit. And I'm, I'm having one after the other. No, I was not toasty. <laughs> and Steve from Lonica shows up, and we got to talking about it. And then he he'd done a whole bunch of research. You know, he talked to Kim and done a bunch of research on the the enzyme and all this stuff. And he's like, "Well, I'll email you." You know, mm-hmm. all the stuff I found out. And he did a couple of days later. So I got home and got this email. I was like, "Well, now I got no excuse not to do it." <laughs> so thanks to Steve, we you know really had a, a you know foot in, in the door as to how to make this beer. I think the hallmark of this beer is its dryness. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, we were talking a little earlier, Jay, and, and you were saying, well, does it have to be crystal clear? And I don't think it does. It shouldn't, shouldn't be milkshaky, but, you know, certainly one of the things that I think people don't, you know, consumers, I'm sure brewers get this, but consumers don't get is that that haze in any beer, it carries other things with it. There's a flavor contribution that haze brings with it. If you take a beer and it's hazy and you drink it and you love it, and then you filter that beer, you know, two things will happen, one positive, one negative. The positive is it pulls out all that haze, which is chalky and, and mouth uh, coating uh, on your tongue. And that's the negative part. It also pulls out some flavor, uh, particularly hop flavor and aroma, and that's the negative part. So your clarifying of a beer 
becomes important uh, in a lot of ways, and maybe a uh, little improvement in shelf stability. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, forget about all that <laughs> shelf stability stuff. <laughs> yeah, those hazy beers. I mean, the really hazy ones. Uh, they're not going to do well. They're not going to age well out in the market in a, a bottle or a can or even a keg, and that's a problem, I think. You know, for consumers, but that's a whole other topic of discussion. But when you have a hazy beer, you know, it, it's got some of that chalkiness and some of that uh, in there. And I don't think that particular flavor or quality belongs in a in a super dry uh, brute IPA. So a little haze, I think, is fine. But super hazy, I think, is, is probably problematic for that style just because of the, the nature of what that, that haze brings to the beer. And I like the fact that it's uh, got a little bit of a reduced bitterness to balance out. I mean, you can't have too much bitterness with that much dryness. So I think what you end up is a very sessionable, very crushable IPA that's got a lot of aroma and, you know, a, a moderate amount of alcohol. Uh, it's not overdone and super dry and drinkable. And that's mm-hmm. what I love about this style. And I, w- when we made it, uh, thank you, Steve, uh, for giving us some, some pointers on how to do it. And I think we, we came up with a very sessionable, uh, very dry version of this i like it yeah being outside on a bench drinking this on a hot day sounds pretty pretty good to me right now just for context it's 6.8 percent yeah 6.8 and it finishes up at zero degrees plato or maybe zero point you know two so that you know that's pretty dry and yet when you drink it you know i think the alcohol that there tricks your tongue into thinking there's some residual sweetness after you swallow yeah absolutely you know for sure but there's not much sugar left in there I think the highest we've had it is uh, 0.6%, you know, Play-Doh. Pretty dry beer. Let's contrast that with some of the other beers you're putting in cans, including the Goza. So we, we've had, and for context, I don't think we really hit too fine of a point on this, but the, the Brute IPA, the Goza uh, are in cans. Yeah. And yeah. the current beer and the barley wine, Star Barley Wine, were both in bottles. Yeah, big bottles, uh, which hopefully will change into 500 mil bottles sometime this year. Oh, that's cool. Um, and those were those were 22s uh, yeah, capped. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep. What's the, you know, we talked, we kind of touched on shelf life for a brief moment there. What do you think, what, do you, what are you seeing with these beers and how they're aging over time from the Goza and cans to kind of the, the mixed culture or barrel-aged beers that you guys put in bottles? The the mixed culture beers, I believe the shelf life's pretty close to infinity. I pulled a sour beer that we made six years ago out of my fridge the other day. And true, it's been in my fridge for the whole six years. But it was in a growler. Um, wow. And had it with a bunch of people. And it was as good or better than it was six years ago. In a growler? In a growler. I know. It still no had kidding. carbonation. Is that I, right? No, it's a bad idea. <laughs> I don't recommend that anyone ever do it. But, you know, as a brewer, I filled it. I filled it all the way to the top. I mean, you know, the, the eulage, that space uh, between the neck and the, the cap were, was very small. Um, Is that, that's called eulage? Eulage. Am I, a, am I just dense that I've not heard that before? I, Are you familiar? No, I've never heard that. Eulage. Yeah, I believe that's a, an old brewer term. Old school. I, I'm an old, old brewer. School. Old yeah. school brewer mm-hmm. term. Um, <laughs> hey, listen, I'm not as old as Mark Carpenter. <laughs> Who, who, by the way, I'll be on the radio with tomorrow uh, in Santa Rosa. We love Mark. Yeah, we do love Mark. But I am old. Mark was on the session in that same bedroom in the same year in 2011. Really? Yes. He he rocks. (laughs) Uh, He's the man. He he was old school then. (laughs) He, He and Brian Hunt are like super old school because those guys came right out of college and, you know, in the 70s and went to work at a brewery. Boom. Yeah. And, you know, they've. 
they got between them, you know, they probably have more than 70 years of brewing, Wow, you know, going on. Both super nice guys and great brewers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm really excited to be, you know, be on that show tomorrow with uh, with Mark. What show? Uh, it's the Brouhaha. You know, it's uh, Steve Jackson has the drive every day up there on uh, KRSO. Oh, on real radio. Yeah. Oh, good times. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what? We're not live here? <laughs> no, no. We're just having a discussion. Oh, it's, po- it's podcast. Yeah, um, podcast. I don't know if the old school guys know what podcasts are. What is yeah. that? It's like radio on the ultranet. What? What's an ultranet? <laughs> on the inter- uh, the you see how old school he is? What is that? Yeah, the inner tubes. Okay. Now I forgot where we were. Mark, we were talking about shelf life. Yeah, shelf life. So uh, I think for a lot of sour beers, um, particularly well-made ones, the the shelf life is near infinity. Uh, A lot of them actually even get better if they're stored at the right temperature. I'm sure you guys experience this with, with your sour beers. Sour... You've already fermented out most of the sugar. There's already bacteria in it. It's pre-infected for your for your pleasure, <laughs> and uh, it's not going to, you know, unless something is really funky in there, it's not going to get worse. It's only going to get better, and the oxygen gets absorbed by uh, whatever yeast is in there. Probably, shockingly, something that we didn't expect is that Goza shelf life is easily a year or two. Uh, I have a five-year-old Goza in my fridge, which I'm hoping to try sometime later this week. What's going or next on week. in this fridge? Uh, <laughs> it must be very big. It, a lot of well, square footage in there. I, have I don't, I don't I want to see several. the loaves of bread in there. Oh, right? <laughs> different fridge. Old growlers sitting there. Thankfully, that's a different fridge. <laughs> Yogurt, old bread. Yeah. It but smells right, like it a 14th century English town. Yeah. <laughs> The food one does, sadly. The beer one is sparkling clean. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a hoarder. Uh, Fact. You can also look for a foul coming up on an episode of Hoarders. Yeah, yeah, probably yeah, be fun. <laughs> uh, I pity, I pity when I when I pass and my nephew has to take care of the crap that I've accumulated. I, I <laughs> Patrick, I'm sorry. I apologize now. Um, but yeah, you know, I think a brewery should always have a library and store your beers and kind of get a feel what they what they how they behave warm and cold. I'm always blown away. We do this every month. We try a beer. Uh, from our our library, warm and cold, and I'm always blown away by the difference and how much better the cold does. With a few exceptions, the warm for the the barrel-aged sour beers does better than the cold because it's aging. Mm -hmm. Things are still going on in there. uh, The Goza, usually cold is better, but we see them a year or two out, and there's just not much to oxidize. There's very little hops. You know, and the problem with the IPA craze or IPAs in general, is that the first thing to, to fall apart in a beer is, is the hop aroma and flavor, and then, you know, the bitterness. And that those things oxidize pretty quickly. So even under your best conditions, a, a six-month-old IPA is kind of worn out, unless it's really been cold the whole time. Uh, certainly a year-old IPA, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to bother with. So it, it's hard to, when craft beer is selling so much IPA, to have basically a beer that is, you're most vulnerable out there. You know, the more hops you have, the more the more you have to oxidize. I have come to find that caramel malt seems to oxidize in an odd way, which I don't like. So uh, a super dark beer, like a stout, I think you're good. Those color components are oxygen receivers, and uh, the beer doesn't oxidize as much or show oxidation as much. Um, but caramely beers seem to oxidize more. And so your worst-case scenario is kind of your caramely hoppy beer, uh, which a lot of breweries, particularly old-school ones, made those IPAs back in the day, caramely hoppy mm-hmm. IPAs. And those things, their shelf life is 
you know, couple months tops. You know, even refrigerated six months is, you know, it would be impressive. I'm excited that lighter IPAs are out there. I think that's a great trend. More reasonably hopped IPAs uh, are beginning to be a thing, and I think that's a great, you know, a great change. Uh, session IPAs, or which are basically hoppy pale ales, uh, a great thing, a great thing. And then just the, the return of low-alcohol session beers is a great thing. And low-alcohol sour session beers. Mm-hmm. Did it surprise you that the Gozes have been aging well? Yeah, very much. The first time I popped one open, I was thinking, this is going to be like hell on wheels. And I drank it, and I thought, huh, you know, no oxidation. And, it, you know, it had some issues. It was, you know, I think it was six months warm, which is a long time to be warm. And our warm is, you know, 80 to 100 degrees. And so I thought it'd show more. For example, a, a hop out an IPA f- from that same, you know, three to six months up there in that hot storage. That stuff is, you know, it's barely drinkable. <laughs> you know, it's it's caramelly hoppy beer. Uh, cold stored, it's pretty good, but not hot. So I was really surprised it goes as aged so well. And I think there's, you know, there's not much sugar in there. They're very dry. They're pre-infected. They're already acidic. There's not a lot that's going to grow in there. So if you do have any bacteria, that's, you know, not going to be as much of an issue. And there's just not that much to oxidize. Just another reason to pick up. Several six packs of Goza when you see them out there on yeah, the shelves. Yeah, whenever you see it. And uh, I think a few things I want to do, Scott. One is, you know, I don't know how much we've actually gotten into the Anderson Valley Goza process. You know, after you, know, you started doing this, you've done the book, now how have things changed? Let's maybe talk about that in our last segment. Let's also maybe tease a question. This question and all questions are brought to you by Dr. Lambic and his team at SourBeerBlog.com. Check out the articles in Sour Beer Blog for a great written resource devoted to teaching you how to brew and blend sour beer at home, or if you're a pro, great resource for that too. And now Sour Beer Blog crew is opening up a brewery. In fact, it's already open. A brewery and taproom in central Pennsylvania, Mechanicsburg, I think. Yes, ma- yes. Check them out, Mellow Mink Brewing at mellowmink.com. We don't even have to tease this, Jay, because it's not a question. It's, in fact, a, a sort of pointer comment from Evan Andrasson. This is an episode 100. We read a question. If you remember, we're a little surprised that he wrote us about it because it was not necessarily a sour question. Uh, Evan says, about the new brewer who got a 1020 reading for a 1050 batch, it could have been a reading of hot wort instead of cooled down. At 185 degrees, 1050 wort would measure right at 1020. Seems more likely than having a 30% extract efficiency, which is what we had sort of said might have been going on there. Mm-hmm. So that's a note for uh, the fellow who wrote in about his his wort not being at, at the target, not even close. Great. And I absolutely remember that. <laughs> there you As go. I do with everything in- Impeccable said. memory, yes. Thal remembers everything he wrote in the book. We already, you know, <laughs> I for remember a couple attacks here. That so. is right. All right. Well, thanks, Dr. Lampert, for bringing us that comment from Evan. Fel, do you have anything else? Yeah, I want to say the Sour Beer Blog guys, Yeah, they were very helpful uh, when I was writing the book, as well as Milk the Funk. If yes. Know, if people don't know about that resource, oh, my. But both those uh, blogs are really good. Excellent. We've yeah. had both of them on the show, actually. Yeah. I'm hoping that we haven't gotten anyone out there has gotten past 100 episodes of the Sour Hour and is not familiar with Milk the Funk. That's a fail fish on your part. I saw some comment that someone showed me somewhere where it was like they were talking about things that used to be talked uh, talked about on the Milk the Funk uh, Facebook group. And they were like uh, pre-Quebec yeast, pre-Jay mentioning this on the Sour Hour or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. When, they, when they came on, uh, I, I mean, the... 
it, you know, they did a great job on the show, which is why their membership exploded. But I think they're like ten times bigger since since that. Time. Is that right? Seriously, no yeah. kidding. And it's a great partnership between Sour Hour, Sour Beer Blog, and Milk the Funk, and also you know the individual authors that are coming out with Goza, and we had Tonsmeyer on the show, oh, yeah. American Sour Beers, great book, and it's just all that coming together. Now Sour Beer is in its apex of information availability. Indeed. It's a really exciting time. It's to cool be to be a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. This is uh, Brewers Publications, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, God bless them. And, you know, the Milk the Funk guys, the Sour Beer Blog guys, they, so many people contributed to this book, were so helpful. And uh, I was really, you know, we are in a great industry where people come together and share information that way. And... I always like to encourage other brewers to, you know, if you got a problem or a question, reach out to your fellow brewers, reach out to your neighbor. And I encourage those people to get reached out to, to to respond in a positive way because we're all a community. You yep. know, high tide floats all boats. For sure. Indeed. Yeah. And that's the great thing about our industry. I like to say the best brewers don't mind asking questions or even saying, you know, hey, I don't know the first thing about this. Yes. Yeah. And some of the worst ones are the ones are too prideful to ask and they think they know and every great brewer every brew master i talk to is always you know you never stop learning no and there's always a little edge you can get you know michael jordan stopped being good in 1990 you know he got even better even though you know, you're the best player in the nba so there's an old aphorism the easily embarrassed do not learn yeah just embrace it, yep. and then it's hilarious. Absolutely, exactly. Yeah, people, <laughs> it, it's very endearing if you just go with it. I'm a little uh, remiss that it took me, you know, until like my 30s basically to figure that out. Like people actually just like that. Well, see, you're still learning, though. Yes, I am. A lot of people have a lot to tell you, and you, I'm always surprised. You know, you, you you go to some place and somebody shows you something new, and you you think, wow, I you figured that out, and you didn't expect them to, and you can learn new things from anybody. You know, they don't have to have been in the business a long time. Off air, Scott and Fowl were talking about how to cheat at blackjack at casinos, and <laughs> I learned a lot. cards is not cheating, Jay. Know. Okay, it's just beating the game. Yeah. All right. <laughs> we'll take advantage somewhere. Yeah. Should we? I want, we're going to get into the ghost process. Let's do it. Finally, Let's take a quick break. <laughs> Great hosting by us. Uh, quick break. We'll be right back on the Sour Hour. Sour Hour. Lucky enough to have Fal here for a long time. He's been hanging in there with us, which is always great. Oh, yeah. Stamina, I got. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent, because now we have uh, another one of your beers, the Boonville Gold. Yeah, it's another non-sour beer, but I, I'd just like to give a shout-out to Jesse at Almanac for making this delicious sunshine and opportunity beer that I'm having right now next to the Boonville Gold. Oh, yeah. What were you saying? It's a peach and... It's pear. Pear. It's okay. pear. It's sour and it's bready and it's delicious. Awesome. I mean, come on. Great beer. I know. Yeah. Their uh, uh, hoppy beer has been on point lately, too. I, really? Yeah. We, you know, Boonville's very small. We don't get a lot of really... Uh, we don't get anything out. Coors Light uh, comes through there oh, quite yeah. often. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I've had that before. 
Well, speaking of Boonville, this is the Boonville Gold. Boonville Gold, yeah. And, you know, I think some people might not know about the the beer festival. Really? That yeah, yeah. who doesn't know? People not from California? Mm. I mean... Yeah, they're going to have to wait a whole year to come to the next one. But if you would like to come to the Boonville Beer Festival, now is the time to make your reservations at local hotels. Because uh, they'll be sold famous. out in a few minutes. No kidding. It's uh, April? When is it every year? It's either, it's the last part of April or the first part of May, and we kind of have to shift it around sometimes. I believe next year is the first weekend of May. You know, because of the CBC, the Craft Brewers Conference, and Mother's Day, and a few other things that happen around there, we have to move it around. This year was the last weekend in April. Uh, This year was fabulous. The weather was perfect. It was supposed to be rainy. I think that kept the attendance down a little bit. I think we were maybe three to five hundred people short from last year which was mayhem uh mayhem is not a good thing well you know sometimes but the boon the the boonville beer festival is unusual in in several ways one uh the majority of the people that go to it camp out we camp over a thousand people on our property they're brewers and friends of brewers we have 85 breweries that come uh, up and so, if you want to try eighty-five different beers, we have no pour limit. Uh, we just give you a glass and you, you taste what you want. Uh, we have two stages with multiple bands. A lot of the brewers will bring things that they don't normally pour, so there are unusual beers there. The attendees have their own campsite. They camp about three thousand people uh, and talk about mayhem. I went there <laughs> once. Uh, I'm still trying to recover from the shock of it. And so, you know, it's a, it's a good weekend, particularly if the weather is nice like this year. It was, you know, you know high 70s, low 80s, uh, sunny, and just a beautiful, a beautiful setting to have a beer fest uh, at the Mendocino County Fairgrounds in Boonville. And we provide bus service up and down the valley. So if you're staying at one of the one of the few motels or campgrounds down in the valley, you can get there for free, to, to, you know, from to the beer fest and back. Yeah, highly recommended. Great time to come out and also visit Anderson Valley. Yeah, yeah, and we, you know, this was a, this yeah. was a record year. We had zero arrests, so that <laughs> that's pretty good. You know, the local constabulary um, set up and randomly pull over people leaving the beer fest, and so we encourage everybody not to drive, and that's why we have the beer service and there's a rickshaw service. But occasionally, a few people insist on driving, mm-hmm. and uh, they get pulled over, and off to jail they go. And those, you know, the brewery, or actually the festival, the brewery doesn't have to, but the festival has to pay for each one of those people who gets arrested, unfortunately. So this year, with zero arrest, we just have that much more money we've raised to donate. And all the profits from uh, this go to, to local charities. So we uh, contribute about $100,000 wow. a year to local charities uh, for money raised during the beer fest. Wow, it's a fortune. Yeah, we've, we've donated over $1.2 million. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. Good on you. Uh, so we'd that? be remiss if we didn't uh, talk, oh, wait, talk a little. about Gaza? Oh, what? <laughs> now, we've pl- we, obviously, we've covered plenty, but no, not plenty, pl- plenty. Uh, we've covered Blind Pig. Yeah, we have. Um, was, that, was that on the air or off? I can't remember now. <laughs> I can't either. <laughs> but um, let's let's maybe walk people through the process of making Goza at Anderson Valley specifically. You know, we talked about, I think, the early days of, hey, let's do this uh, sour mash, and then you guys transition it to the kettle. But now, kind of more lately, post-book, you know what 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 has changed? What did you learn to improve your process? And we can also assume that 
uh, a lot of the listeners have they know a lot some of the kind of essential basics of uh, you know wort souring and things like that. But um, as much depth as you want to go into, I think would be very helpful for those who are interested okay. in this style. You know, um, I outline several different ways to to sour your wort in the book. So if you don't have the book, you should. If you if you're serious about making sour beer, uh, buy the book. But um, Anderson Valley has come up with a, a method. I don't think it's the best by any means, but I think it works the best for us. Uh, each brewery needs to decide what you know what's going to work best for them. Our system. I, I talked to the guys at Sierra Nevada, also very very nice, very uh, forthcoming with their information. They do a different process than we do. That's what works best for them, and it's you know there is no no right process. There's just right for you. Where um, does their process differ from yours? They are uh, deathly afraid of sour bacteria, and who can blame them? I think Ken is smart to be afraid. We should all be afraid of, unless that's all you do is sour beer, then you, you don't need to be afraid. Then you're just smart. Jay embraces yeah. it. Yeah. Embrace, yeah. It. embrace, embrace the funk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so jealous. Um, really think, you know, and Firestone Walker has really done it right. They just have two whole breweries <laughs> yeah. now. One makes sour beer and one makes non-sour beer, and they're like in a different zip code, which is, mm-hmm. that's the correct way to yeah. do it, you know. Um, they just want gin as far away as possible. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, you know, we talked about that funky sour in your bar, you know, in, yep. in the middle uh, ages. <laughs> so, Shout out to Jim Crux. Jim Crux. Yeah, Jim is awesome. Uh, Jim, thank you also. He sent a recipe in for this book. A lot of really uh, great brewers have sent in recipes for the book, so uh, it's filled with interesting recipes as well. Uh, but at Anderson, you know, their, their process is they're afraid of of the, the lacto, and I don't blame them. So they do a whole separate off kind of separate souring and then use that to sour. Uh, you know, they boil it and kill all the bacteria and then use that to sour the main brew, and that works well. And some people use acidified malt uh, and have good results with it. Uh, some people have used just adding lactic acid, you know, at some point in the process and had some decent results. I think that having the bacteria actually produce the acidity gives it a, a lot more depth and complexity that you don't get with by just adding lactic acid. Our process is uh, what I think is certainly the, the easiest, maybe not the best, but we we do regular mash. We mash in. We run off into the kettle. At that point, the, the wort that we run off is too hot to add the bacteria to. Uh, so we intentionally high-gravity brew into the kettle. Then we'll water back uh, with our house water uh, to get it down to the right gravity and temperature. And then we'll put in a giant pitch of lactobacillus bacteria, slightly over what we'd use for pitching um, beer with yeast. So yeast pitches, you know, 1 million cells per ml per degree Plato. And so we do slightly like 1.1 or 1.2 million cells of bacteria per ml per degree Plato. So it's a lot, a huge pitch. And the huge pitch has a lot of uh, good things about it. The two things that you want to do to keep from creating funky, and, and when I say funky, I mean not not good funky, bad funky um, flavors in your beer with these sorts of beers is uh, drop your acidity as rapidly as possible and exclude oxygen. So we run off into the kettle. We put a massive pitch in. We blanket the top of the kettle with uh, nitrogen or argon. Uh, both inert gases. I think argon's vaguely cheaper at this point, so we use that sometimes. And then that massive massive pitch uh, gets the pH dropping pretty quickly. So once it's below 5, you're in pretty good shape. And once it gets below 4.8, you know, you're doing a lot better. And that, as the acidity goes up or the pH goes down, 
you start to exclude certain types of bacteria that uh, make these weird, funky flavors that you don't want. And a little bit of that is nice. You know, at super low levels, some of these weird uh, things get kind of a guava note or a fruity note, and that's kind of interesting. But you don't want too much, certainly. So we drop that pH as fast as we can, and we usually can do it in 6 to 12 hours. And, I, you know, I've talked to some brewers who, who are doing it over two or three days. Mm-hmm. And that that's a long time. It ties up your kettle for a long time or whatever you're using, you know, to, to sit in. What's your, what's your target pH that you're going for? Somewhere between 3.4 and 3.2. Mm-hmm. Um, 3.2 is kind of low. We, we prefer, prefer a little bit above that. 3.4 is getting a little bit up there. We don't above that. 3.5 maybe, but... If we're doing multiple batches into one fermenter, two or three batches, then you can you can blend up a little bit and even things out. So if you get one that's 3.2 and one that's 3.4, it works out perfect. Do you consider whether it's going to become, for lack of a better term, plain goza versus a fruited type, or you're just you're going for that range, and once you hit it, you're you're good to go. The latter. We all our base gozas are the same. Uh, the original goza is, is the same as all the others, except for the diff- we, we differ only in the fruits that we add. Um, the process and the targets and the malt bill are all the same. Uh, that's not entirely true. Every once in a while, we'll do something that is completely intentionally different, but that hasn't worked out all that well for us. So we just try and keep it the same. But once we hit that target pH, we turn on the boil, we boil it, and that kills all the lactobacillus bacteria doesn't remove them from the process it just kills them and we then you know ship it over to a fermentation like any other beer what is just quickly to interject what about hops so i assume on you know the first go around maybe there's none zero and then what about on that subsequent boil that is a the kill step of the lactobacillus once it's soured you know there's no hops in it previous to, to souring once it's soured uh we can then add whatever hops you want. And that's one of the great things about this this process is that you're able to sour the beer without having to worry about the hops inhibiting it. So if you want to make a hoppy goza, which I don't recommend, but, you know, maybe some people want to, maybe a lightly acidic goza with hops in it would be good. When your pH gets below like 3.5, you know, down into the 3.2 area, the bitterness and the sourness don't really go so well together, I think, um, and our taste panel thinks. But, you know, once you've soured it, you're free to do whatever you want hop-wise. And that, I think that's a, a, good, a good way, a good thing about this process. And then we ship over and ferment with our house yeast. And that goes perfectly fine the first time around. It goes horribly wrong the second <laughs> time around. So we don't reuse that yeast. That yeast is essentially uh, burnt by the acidity. Uh, it makes perfectly fine beer that first time. But when we repitch that yeast, it does make beer. You can drink it. But you're not going to like it. <laughs> so it does present a problem for us that we can't repitch that yeast. So the more goes we make, the more yeast propping we have to do. Sure. Um, but the ferment goes off perfectly fine. And uh, like you, we add the salt at the end of fermentation. Mm. We add the salt and the fruit together usually. We do it at the very end of fermentation. And we do it there because initially we assume that the yeast would ferment the fruit sugars out. But... I don't think that happens. I don't see any more evolution of CO2 after we add the yeast, I mean, after we add the fruit. What I do see, you know, is if you take hydrometer readings, you see the gravity go up when you add the fruit, and then you see it drop down either to where it was before or sometimes actually below. Mm -hmm. And my assumption, 
is that the yeast is taking that sugar on board in preparation for going dormant. You, you know, I know they, that's a thing that yeast does. Uh, they store glycogen and, and sugar, and um, I assume that's what's happening. I, sh- I assume that's where that sugar is ending up. It's ending up in the yeast, which is a good thing. You, you don't want it left in your beer for all kinds of reasons. Uh, we don't want the sweetness, and we don't want the additional fermentability later on in case we get an infection. That works really well. Adding the salt to the cold side, I think, is uh, good. It doesn't interfere with fermentation that way. And uh, something that we hadn't thought about until I started writing the book is that stainless is not really stainless. It it stains, and it doesn't like it doesn't like a whole bunch of things. It doesn't like to be heated up and cooled down. It makes it brittle. It doesn't like salt of any kind. You know, it doesn't like the the chlorine in it, and you know, when you're adding your salt on the hot side, you're potentially damaging your kettle. But even worse is you're potentially damaging the stainless of your heat exchanger, which to me is the most frightening because that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. If you've got a clean and intact heat exchanger, you're in good shape. But once you're a heat exchanger, which, you know, the metal's already thin because it's meant to exchange heat, um, once, once you get a problem in there, you're, you're done. Every beer you run through, it's going to have issues. Maybe one, maybe some that you don't notice right away. Also, absolutely, you know, you you could have a low level infection in your heat exchanger and not know it for months, and those beers will not taste as good, and probably subsequently out in the market, the infection will will show itself even more. So, I think it's really important to keep your heat exchanger super clean, and putting salt through it just makes me super nervous um, because you know I talked to a bunch of metallurgy guys and welders and you know different people and they all said the same thing that yeah if you're going to use salt 304 stainless is not your is not your choice and that's basically what all brewing equipment is is 304 you know maybe some 316 but i worry about it so putting it in on the cold side is way safer you're not going to have the same reactions because it's colder temperatures and you're not going to be running it through your heat exchanger yep and what what batch sizes are we talking about when you're doing the salt addition What's like a good kind of maybe metric for people to work off of on a, like a pound, probably maybe even not in that much, but like, you know, weight per BBL, weight per volume. And then how do you have it well integrated? You know, you're saying you're adding it at the, you know, kind of back half of fermentation. I think there's, there's some kind of mi- natural mixing going on in the fermenter, but... Are you doing any recircular? Like, how do you make sure that the salt gets everywhere? I, I just want to point out that as Jay was asking that numbers-based question, Fal r- reached for his own book I'm and started flipping the through. Like, yeah, where's uh, that? Let, let, let me see. That's a good thing I'm not on the show because if anyone asked me, like, <laughs> so, Jay, on this uh, beer, what's, like, the how many pounds per gallon of fruit? And I'll just be Jay's like, thing is, like, ask, me, ask my lackeys, me, man. Yeah, I don't let know. Let me text Tommy real quick. Let's <laughs> yeah. cut this out. I... I don't recall how many grams per gallon or liter we use. It's in the book. I mean, it's not like I'm trying to keep any secrets in the book. No, no, it's uh, not on Google. It's if, only in the book. If you yes. Can, if you can find that picture in the book, there's a salt section that'll tell you how much. I don't, you I don't recall. Um, I want to say something like 28 grams per gallon, but maybe that comes from a different experience in my life, the 28 grams part. Um <laughs> I was going to say, I got myself a lid. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So how much I, you know, what was the other part of the How is it incorporated? Oh, and how has it, good question. And, you know, I assume you have kind of 
a large batch going. Yeah, we so. do. Our brew house is 100 barrels, so we do that's, that's one, one, two, and 300 barrel batches um, of Goza. Quite often, a 300 barrel batch. So it's three brew house uh, brews into a, into a fermenter. Uh, we have a, a special tank we bought for adding fruit and uh, and salt and. Yeah, we got it made up. It's got a mixer in it. And so we'll put the, the salt or the fruit into this smaller tank that's on wheels that we can wheel around and uh, let it mix for quite a while, you know, put some water in there. And we brew a gravity, so we, we take this into the con- consideration uh, so we won't be watering down the beer. But we, you know, dissolve the salt or the salt and fruit together uh, in an aqueous solution and then inject it Which into the... hot liquor? Yeah. And by the time we yeah, finish mixing it, it's no longer hot enough to matter. Um, and we're putting it into, you know, warm beer. It's not like it's chilled cold beer. Sure. Um, so we then inject it in and maybe out of, I mean, who knows how many batches of that we've made. But a very small percentage, every once in a while, we'll see that it didn't homogenize properly in the tank. This is pump in or pressure transfer? Pressure. We, okay. we blow it in Just through the bottom. Oh, through and, the bottom. Yeah. Okay. And we have, or through or the racking, racking arm, arm depending on, yeah, with okay. the racking arm up, depending on the tank. And then we will blow a little, a little, the little being the operative word, a bit of CO2 to kind of Rouse. drag that up. And we'll do that through the bottom sometimes. But it pretty much wants to be in solution. And uh, unless you didn't get it fully dissolved earlier, it pretty much goes into solution pretty easily. And then when you transfer the beer or you uh, centrifuge the beer or you filter the beer or whatever you do with the beer afterwards, that helps to homogenize it. Mm. Um, even if you do get some stratification, which happens with even with you know beers that don't have fruit in them, you get you know, thermal stratification or other types of stratification, moving it to another tank That's, uh, yeah. homogenizes it. So usually that resolves the issues. That's something I didn't think about because sometimes we'll do those types of infusions in our pat like in the same tank that we package out of. Yeah, that I think the the transfer kind of solves all those problems. Right, and we now centrifuge pretty much. You know, not sure I'm going to say 100 percent of our beers, but the vast majority of our beers get centrifuged. So not the hazy IPA. No. <laughs> That, that may dot, be an dot, issue. Dot. Yeah, dot, we, dot, we dot. will make. We are making one. <laughs> we are coming out with a hazy IPA. Breaking news. Breaking yeah. network. Ooh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Sal would know the details about the hazy IPA, but the records burned in a fire. Yeah, they yeah. burned. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when I touched them, they spontaneously self-combusted. <laughs> you shall not know. Um, yeah, centrifuging is a great way to homogenize everything. I mean, you spin it around and then pump it into another tank. Mm-hmm. So we, we quit filtering beers, by and large, unless we do a small batch. So we have three, we have three brew houses. We have a half barrel, a eight barrel, and a hundred barrel. And occasionally the eight barrel will get filtered depending on the beer. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, we don't filter any of our production beers anymore. It's all just spun in, into a conditioning tank. Gotcha. All right. I think that's a thorough rundown of the Goza. Uh, I think we're, we're running up, up against, against it. Indeed, we are. Thanks. Industry term. Yummy. Uh, Got to finish up with one of our the question. One of our favorites. Val, what do you think the biggest mistake in sour beer making is? The biggest mistake that a brewer could make, or that I've made, <laughs> could, could be. Either. Well, you're a brewer, so same. You know, same thing. <laughs> no, he's a master. Yeah, a master not, brewer. Yes. I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> I know we outlined some of the things that I think that are important to keep in mind. I know the biggest mistake. Uh, I think the 
I don't want to harsh on anybody uh, in the world. You can name names. I don't know. I, actually, I can't name names. <laughs> the rare guy. Uh, can't Jake Goodwin. I think uh, you alluded to this a little bit. Not not so much now in my experience uh, out drinking, but five years ago, I think some of the people making sour beers were mistaking acetic acid for lactic acid, and they are not the same thing. Acetic acid is vinegar, and it tastes like vinegar, and it, you have it in, you know, your stomach acid is acetic acid, and lactic acid is a totally different kind of acid, and the quality of acids, I think, is something that beginning sour brewers don't don't appreciate um every type of acid is very different you know hydrofluoric acid is way different than say you know citric acid and different types of acid are very very different uh hydrofluoric will eat almost anything um including tile it's like uh, something out of alien and <laughs> you know you, you know old don't school reference <laughs> You don't want that in your beer. And is that a superhero you're movie? about the alien or the acid? <laughs> Either, man. That, the messing you up. It's going to pop um, out of your stomach. You know that scene where that little alien shoots out of his... That was just oh, yeah. too much sour beer. Yeah. That does not hold up special effects-wise. No, way. it really doesn't. I just watched um, that like a month and a half ago. But, uh, you know, acetic acid is, is produced by acetobacter, which needs oxygen to to make that to make that acid and lactic acid uh, is very different it's very lactic acid is very clean soft uh, lemony and acetic acid is vinegary and harsh and very very tart and a little bit of acetic acid does in fact lend itself to some fullness in your beer so a, a touch of it is quite nice like opening a bottle of red wine and letting it breathe for a moment you know letting it breathe for an hour is great Letting it breathe for three days means you ended up with oxidized, you know, red wine. And the same thing is true with acetic acid. A little bit of it opens up the beer and, and gives it some nice roundness. But too much of it just means that you got an acid bomb that tastes like, you know, fish and chips vinegar. And you can't mm-hmm. – I don't like drinking it. It's just too harsh on your throat. And I think a lot of brewers – five years ago, I think a lot of people learned that uh, some people maybe still not – you know, grokking that, that those are two different types of acid. They're produced in two different uh, processes, and one is to be avoided for the most part. It's crazy how unpleasant acids were, like, I don't know, perceived as desirable, I guess. You know, just getting handed, you know, beers at the SoCal Homebrewers Fest nine years ago, and it was either... Shout out to SoCal. Yeah, shout out to, right. And it's not, not to specify, I mean, it was it was not unique to that festival, but acetone and acetic. Mm-hmm. But just like any acid was like, hey, I made an acidic beer. Yeah. And no. I think a lot of brewers, particularly professional brewers, have, have kind of gotten that. I see less and less of that. Um, but occasionally you do come across one and you think, man, this might have been a good beer. You know, but if the just, acid were t- a different kind of acid, right? The one's so harsh. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. um, and you know, in the beginning, I think that our arms race with IPAs, you know, to make ever more alcoholic and ever more hoppy. You know, 120 IBU, 11 percent double IPA. When they started making acidic beers, it was the same way. Our sour beers are like the more acid, the better, mm-hmm. and. It just ain't so. On either case, really, neither of them are, are really desirable things. I mean, I get it. You know, we're Americans. We think bigger is better. But I think, you know, that's not always true. In fact, it's not often true. Subtlety. Yeah, I think that's great. 
Foul drives an F-350 dually, just so you know. You know, I, I drive a crappy Toyota Tacoma. Do you really? Yeah, oh, I, I picked the opposite end of the pickup truck spectrum. Yeah. That's awesome. In fact, you know, every time my girlfriend sees one of those gigantic trucks with those gigantic wheels, the guy spent a fortune, you know, on suspension and everything, it drives by and she says, sorry about your dude, dude. Sorry about your dick, dude. I thought you were going to say, ah, oh, I could be dating him. <laughs> I wonder if he's single. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that. She says, sorry about your dick, dude. Sorry, so, sorry bro. So, <laughs> besides that big mistake, the biggest mistake, you know, make sure you get to know your acids and you're going to have a good time. That's from Fal. Yeah. <laughs> Where do people get the book? You can get it on Amazon, which is shocking. Actually, the cheapest place I think you can get it is on Amazon. You, what, how do you get the most money? How do I? You, people write me and say, "Hey, send me a book. Here's my twenty bucks. Send me cash." Totally. Do, you, do you have Venmo? Six, I do have Venmo. Account. I have Venmo. Listen, you send me an email. My email is easy. Venmo. Fallen at avbc.com. F a l l e n. Yeah, at avbc, like Anderson Valley Brewing Company. And really, you can write and ask me any question you want about beer, anything of a non-personal nature. Um, <laughs> and uh, don't ask about you, trucks. I heard your clarification. Yeah, I heard your girlfriend like small wieners. <laughs> Yeah, I'll uh, cut it out in post, yeah. Yeah, you know, people, I encourage people to email me, you know, if you got questions about beer, brewing, um, you want a book, <laughs> send me 20 bucks any way you want, <laughs> Venmo, check, credit card, I'll take it in exchange, <laughs> take it in chance, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'll mail you a book. Awesome. Uh, that's that's the way I make the most money. One more thing, Anderson Valley Beer distributed where? For our everywhere, countrywide, worldwide. Yeah, is, it, is it all fifty states? No, no. We're in. You know, my boss would be a better guy to answer this. He's our sales guy. He manages all of that. I believe we're in about thirty-two states, which is you know most of the places you'd expect beer. And I believe we're in sixteen countries now. Most wow. of Southeast wow. Asia, most of Europe, some of South America. Um, I don't think we're in Africa yet, although. One never knows. No. All they have to do is ask, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we actually do pretty well in Asia, and that's where, you know, the bulk of our um, exports are. And, and in some places in Europe, Europe's a little more of a different market. You know, I think the Europeans are still struggling with the fact that they made all this awesome beer, and then Americans came along, copied them, innovated on top of the copy, and now they innovation is the american thing and they're like what wait a minute what happened how are they the ones making good beer why we have nothing to learn from them can't believe they didn't look across the board of industry and didn't see that one coming (laughs) sorry shout out to our european friends (laughs) you know see what you you see what you get for sharing as a brewer yeah yeah all right on that note Al, thanks so much for coming in. Well, thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun. It was a great time. Scott, thanks for coming in yourself. You're welcome. Pleasure having all these Anderson Valley beers. Ball Hornin', baby. Yeah, Ball Ball Hornin'. Since 1987? That is right. Bevo's been around since 1987. She's old school. Wait, Thanks, Bevo. I sure have. Thanks to the fans. Thanks to the sponsors. Until next time, stay sour. Ball Hornin'. It's sour and it's bready and it's delicious. Awesome. I mean, come on.